Hello and welcome to episode 80 of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This time we're joined by Sarah Brin and this conversation was recorded on the 12th of September 2023. Sarah and I talk about the types of AI, the process of making artwork with AI, how is an artwork culturally valuable in and of itself, curatorial practices for AI art, collaborative artwork with AI, AI in games, and much, much more. If you've enjoyed this episode, you'd like to find out more, you can go to machine-ethics.net. You can contact us via email at hello at machine-ethics.net. You can follow us on Twitter, machine underscore ethics, Instagram, machine ethics podcast, YouTube, youtube.com forward slash at machine-ethics. And if you can, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Thanks very much and hope you enjoy. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Um, if you could please introduce yourself, uh, tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, my name is Sarah Brin. I am an expert in digital creativity. I have a background in art history, especially surrounding newer technologies. And I also work full-time at a video game AI company called Kythera AI. Awesome. And I was extremely excited to get you on the podcast because I had this notion that we've had a couple of episodes which kind of touch on art and creativity in AI. And since then, we've had literally an explosion of like creative AI services and products and uh, large language models uh, and image stuff which has really contributed to this conversation. And I think we I really wanted to revisit it. And you're, you put yourself uh, above the parapet and I thought that you were like literally the, the perfect person to, to have a chat with. So thank you very much for joining me. I wanted uh, to ask you about creativity, but the first thing we always ask on the podcast is what is AI? Oh gosh. <laughs> Um, so the first, the first part is, is, is easy, right? So that's artificial, right? So, so for the purposes of, of this conversation, we can see, say made by a machine, uh, intelligence is the harder, trickier one, right? So we can say that intelligence might mean the ability to solve problems or complete tasks. And that's, that's like the, the shorthand I often use, but you might also know that there's a whole bunch of different types of intelligence, right? So there's like kinetic intelligence, there's interpersonal intelligence. Um, and I and I think that the, the current definition of AI uh, has a very limited definition of what intelligence is and can be. And it's, it's interesting because I see parallels a bit with you had this um, recent talk at Gamescom this year and you were talking about different types of fun as well. Lots of different types of fun. Um, and it's very hard to actually define some of these words in a succinct way. And you have to use multifaceted and stuff like that. So um, are you kind of referring to like the kind of the Boston Dynamics robots? You know, they are maybe, let's say, intelligent at kinetic stuff. And then you have things like um, stable diffusion or whatever, which those systems might be more intelligent in this image or like interpretation sort of way? There are, there are loads of different types of AI as well, yeah. as I yeah. know, right? So there's like spam filters are a type of AI and that's something that, that does one thing really well. Um, and so, and then yes, there's also uh, generative AI, which is the one that's getting a lot of pop, like attention right now. Um, and then there's, there's, there's a type of 
AI that I work with and in my day job. And that that's um, very much oriented towards solving a problem or completing a task. And then there's also stuff like theory of mind AI, which is, you know, does does the AI itself like have a, a like a an awareness of itself or or then there's self-aware AI. Um and it's there's just so many different types. Yeah. So should, should, should we clarify that there there isn't self-aware AI? There is not. Yes, good. There is not. That is correct. But there well, according to a study that came out a little while ago, um there 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 might be an ai that has theory of mind equivalent to a nine-year-old child but um i think there's 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 more to be discovered there yeah yeah i don't think i've read that one but that sounds like there's a lot of nuance there because i have a six-year-old child (laughs) and that's sort of terrifying that there might be something that is more let's say more powerful i'm doing inverted like hand quotes here um more powerful than that is slightly unnerving, right? Yes, yes. I think about my my dog. I will like maybe has a level of intelligence of a three year old child, and and I I don't. Yeah, I'm it would be very very scary. But yeah, it was it was GPT four that, mm. that some some researchers decided that um, theory of mind might have spontaneously emerged in it. Mm. But uh, who knows? I think it, this was just a couple of weeks ago as well. Yeah. I think uh, we could definitely go down the rabbit hole of talking <laughs> more about that. Um, but I want to kind of segue us back to uh, the more creative endeavors because we have this idea that, like I said in the beginning, we have these new tools and there are new issues or impacts with those tools that people are either f- literally feeling or are, you know, on the horizon somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I wanted to get into really today was this idea that we have uh, human-made things and that we derive value from those things. And I'd love to have your feeling about how that change, that relationship changes when actually the the work or the the product, the creative endeavor, the, the thing that is being produced either has, uh, let's say, a little or limited human input right mm-hmm. and should that change how we feel about the artwork uh, or how we um talk about it or how we um obviously there's there's legal ramifications that we're going through at the moment um but just just on that point do you have any kind of gut feelings about how our situation is changing because of these facts well it is and it isn't in some way so like a lot of my work in an art historical context and working with like large cultural institutions like SFMOMA and the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles is around working with artists made video games, right? And I think, or, and I've also done a lot of work with digital fabrications so like 3D printing and laser cutters. So I think it's very normal for a lot of people to say, hold on a second, I can't see the hand of the artist in that. I can't see the hand of a human, um, meaning they can't see a brush stroke or like the role of the human in the process. They just see the object. And I think in a lot of ways that's a curatorial problem, right? So like a lot of art and design focuses specifically on the finished object. But a lot of what's really interesting in art process, uh, art to me is the process, the process of making the artwork. And so when we start to think about how humans and AI work together, What's really interesting to me is that process, that back and forth, that exchange, and not so much the finished object. 
let's say that you are let's hyper, let's make a hypothetical uh, situation for you here, Sarah. Um, so you're in a gallery, let's say. Um, I mean, this is a very contextual space already. So we're walking into a gallery. We're expecting a certain thing to happen to us. There's probably white walls. There's some writing on the walls somewhere. And you see maybe a, a, a large painting, let's say, because that's the uh, a very easy medium for everyone to kind of grok, have in their mind. Um, and it says just, you know, it has a title and it has a name and, and maybe that's what you get given. Let's say that that painting or that image uh, was created through a system. And let's, for argument's sake, say the, the individual artist had little to do with that. Maybe just they put in a prompt. And the first thing came up, they printed it really, really big. And it's, it was awesome. Okay. It was so awesome. I, th I think I'm trying to get at this, like, how is it okay that people still get a lot from that painting, right? Like the aesthetic of it, maybe. The, how do they feel when they view it? You know, um, yeah. that sort of thing. The emotion, are they emotionally charged? Um, and actually, should we care about the fact that it's produced by AI and, mm. and less about that and, and care more about how, the visceral reaction of being human being in a space viewing something is um you're nodding i'm just gonna <laughs> so, so, first of all i'm a populist right so yeah. i am kind of like art historian and art worker who understands that a lot of people feel alienated in museums and i am the person who's here to tell you it's okay to like what you like it's okay to not like what you don't like and the same goes with wine the same goes with cheese it's the same thing um, and so, yes, it's okay to like things. And there are also really different personal reasons why we like things. And if that is, that, that thing is created by a machine, fine, yeah. great. Yeah. However, there are also mechanics in terms of how we decide if something is culturally important or not. And so who are those arbiters of importance, right? So that's going to be museums. That's going to be art critics, that's gonna be uh, press, right? And so usually when uh, you, one of these organizations is deciding if something is art historically meritorious, there are criteria um, that they apply to the work. So is it art historically valid or even art historically interesting if it's just, okay, a computer made this? There's not much of a story to tell there. And in terms of deciding, okay, if this is this valuable? Is this culturally valuable? Is it monetarily valuable? That's a huge part of museums as well. Mm -hmm. yep. um, is it is is a really important question for to to ask. Um so yeah, there's a little bit of a distinction between mm. high art and everyday art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a validity to its kind of presence there in the gallery itself. Like and 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 how that's um, what the mechanisms of that are. Mm -hmm. um, is it, by extension? Do you, let's take it to a, a little bit more. Like I keep saying visceral, but like um, in music, that there is this response as well. And I'm going to say that for me, listening to a bit of a music produced by some sort of AI system probably has the same reaction, right? Then mm -hmm. then not. Um, and the, the only kind of thoughts I have that on that initially, knowing maybe that uh, a piece was made by AI, is uh, maybe that it's mediocre or fine. You know what I mean? <laughs> maybe it doesn't have the highs and lows that um, maybe a, a human-made piece um, or the inaccuracies maybe. <laughs> um, 
and I and I think when we talk about like appreciating particular artworks or pieces of music, it talking about the context in which the works are produced adds a lot to our understandings of and our feelings about the work. So if you know we were talking about like a like a poem, you know, part of the story is like, oh yes, Langston Hughes, you know, was part of the Harlem Renaissance, and this is what life was like. Um, and it, the artwork becomes a piece of a puzzle, of an overarching story. With AI created works, I think we need to tell a different type of story. Mm. Uh, doesn't mean that story can't be rich and interesting, but uh, we need to figure out how to tell it and what it is. And again, that comes back to like the curatorial issue, right? Mm -hmm. um, I remember because I, I used to be interested in um, interested in art. Should I say no? That's bad. I am still interested in art. Yes, good. But um, <laughs> um, I had this this problem, I guess, back when we were talking about new media artworks and how to present those in in the gallery or present those to in different spaces and, and how, uh, for example, internet art or um, screen-based media could be presented, right? And I guess that, that that's another extension of that, like how, how do we tell the story of this artwork or this creative practice? What does that look like? All these different things that um, this new technology is enabling. Absolutely. And so something, something I, I really enjoyed doing when I worked at the Pure 9 Digital Fabrication Facility. So it was a, a building in San Francisco that's run by Autodesk and is full of all this like really sophisticated digital fabrication hardware. And so what I would do when I was curating the artists in residence shows, I would show the artworks inside of the machines that produced them. So that way I could have a water jet cut sculpture displayed on the Omax water jet cutter, which is like this massive machine that has basically like a nozzle on a gantry that moves back and forth that sprays highly pressurized water and sand that can cut through six inches of steel. So, and it's also like in this, like a kind of big, big bed that looks like a, a nightmare swimming pool. And so being able to <laughs> like, like show those things in conversation with each other really helps tell that story of how the thing got made. And I'm sure, you know, if we were to think about it a little while, there's there's so much we could do curatorially to, mm. to tell the story and provide that as well. However, that's not really conducive with a kind of white box of museum that a lot of us are, are more or less acquainted with. Yeah, 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 exactly. It depends on how thoroughly you would like to invite that into the gallery space. Um, I always find that there's quite a few shows at the barbican i went to over the years that do that where they may be curating the process as well as the um the artworks themselves or at least having extensive information about it yeah it's funny because you you kind of often there's this other tension right where you might have some sort of reaction to a piece a sculpture let's say, for example, um, and then you read the title and you read that it's from AI and maybe you have now a different response and you feel differently about it um, and it changes your perspective on on, on the scene, on, on how it is, as um, if it didn't have that label. Uh, but obviously that's always been a tension in gallery space anyway, but um, I feel like more so when it's like the hand of the um, artist is is less prominent absolutely and and you know sometimes 
sometimes seeing that AI is on a label can add to an experience and sometimes it can challenge an expectation. I mean, and also very few people read these labels, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes, sometimes you'll look at a label and it'll be like, talk about like the components and you'll be like, oh my God, the art is so good. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And it'll be like, whoa. So, you know, I think it's, it's interesting to, to have that context and people will bring whatever they they want to the interpretation um great okay we we've solved that that's it's <laughs> we're just gonna get we're gonna get all the curators in and then just kind of like load it onto them They're like go nuts guys <laughs> <laughs> you're ready it's yeah that's it. <laughs> do, do you think do you think it's important for those um types of spaces to really understand a bit about the technology to be able to display it in a way that is going to be communicative you know Absolutely. And museums are usually the last to integrate emerging technology. So usually you'll see it, something, a technology pop up in industry, then maybe some early adopters in the creative sector. Um, military is also unfortunately likely to be an early adopter of emerging techs as, as well. But, um, and, and then education and then cultural institutions. So, uh, and that's why, you know, sometimes you're in a museum and you're like, oh, this interactive is broken. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because, uh, yeah, they, they often don't have the resources or the infrastructure to, to keep up with timely things. A lot of museums are meant to, to collect things that are static, mm -hmm. like sculptures and paintings, but you don't have like the, um, the operating system for painting go out of existence, right? Yeah. You don't have like an, an, an engine stopping supported for a sculpture. Um, so yes, it, it takes a, a lot of cultural change in education to, to get a whole organization on board with a new technology. I've, I've, I've done that firsthand with, with video games and it's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that with like um, archiving video game stuff and presenting that, you know, out of date? Are <laughs> archival stuff, visitor services. So like the people who are working on the gallery floor, like they need to know what to say. They need to be able to restart something if it mm. breaks. Um, you know, there, there's curatorial, of course, and then there's security. Uh, there's there's loads to, to factor in. Let us, let's sidestep now to the kind of impending doom, right? <clears throat> Which is like the generative AI is going to take our jobs situation. Um, I like doing, like, I like coding. I like um, having that kind of intellectual puzzle, which is uh, creating some, uh, something that, that works, right? Um, and it feels like lots of people who were concept artists or illustrators or photographers are being essentially slapped in the face with this kind of ease of um, production, um, mm -hmm. which is kind of um, getting in the way of maybe work or, uh, or in fact, you know, taking some of their, their work and um, melding into the system to produce new artifacts. So I know you mentioned in that video that, that I mentioned earlier at Gamescom that you, you're pro-unionization um for for the maybe the games industry uh, does that extend to those sorts of people there's uh creative art workers let's say absolutely um and my you know we can see what a powerful force it is for the writers guild and the screen actors guild to unionize 
um, they've shut down a whole industry. And I am heartened by the unionization efforts I'm seeing in the US um, at some Amazon warehouses and Starbucks, et cetera. Um, yeah, and it is my hope that they'll they'll take a page from that book. I think if you're working as a freelancer, it's a lot harder to think about. However, there are freelancer unions, mm. but um, I think it's it's important for for people to make it. Technological advancement doesn't have to be at human expense, mm. but um, it's uh, unfortunate that not everyone thinks that way. Yeah. And it's not always distributed evenly as well. Like someone who is, you know, a concept artist might be impacted uh, initially today and then someone further down the line, developers, whatever, doing kind of basic gameplay programming, maybe more so tomorrow. And he's making sense out of that stuff from an economic point of view, which is uh, uh, what we're grappling with at the moment, I guess. Yeah, we're. I mean, what we're seeing... Is happening in, in a few different channels. So there, there's a there's a drive, an economic drive by studio heads and major companies. And I, I think they're not necessarily thinking about the craft, they're not necessarily thinking about the process. But an interesting side effect of this is that if we keep on training data sets on things that exist already, um, there's only certain types of innovation we can get. So it's it's going to be more of the same, and we're going to see things in in different combinations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, but um, we're we're taking a certain part of human innovation out of the picture, uh, and this doesn't necessarily mean that it's show over for concept artists. I I do think that it can be an opportunity to complicate and evolve new types of art practices. Mm. Uh, just like when, you know, photography was invented, a lot of artists were like, oh no, painting is over forever. And then what they did instead is they kind of moved more towards abstraction and they moved towards expressionism and it kind of pushed the medium forward. What is different about a lot of types of AI is that the the impact of AI is is not just limited to a specific field. It is, it is across seemingly everything. And um, again, that doesn't need to be a bad thing. We need to have certain protections in place to make sure technology can serve people. Um, awesome. Yes. I mean, my hope is that we are creating a better situation, you know, at the end of this, instead of destroying the uh, wealth of stuff that we had, it'd be a disaster if we look back and went, oh, the noughties, they were like, that's the pinnacle of human, uh, the human epoch, and I know it's been terrible ever since that AI stuff was uh, came in. Um, we're obviously doing the wrong things if that's that was the case. Do you do you see many people kind of um, really embracing the technology at the moment and, and getting a lot out of it um, in terms of those creative practices? Yeah, and I think there's there's different types of, of enthusiasm around it, right? And so there are, I always like to point to something called the Gardner hype cycle when I talk about new technologies. And what that does is it shows kind of gap in the hype around a, a new technology and what it can actually do. Um, and then there's always like the, a point called the trough of disillusionment in mm -hmm. which it 
do something. So I think, you know, there's there's some hype and I, I think that um, people might be disappointed about where AI is at in terms of its ability to generate certain things, certain things it does really well. And then there are people who have been using AI for a long time to complicate complicate and complexify the practices like Sugun Chung, who's been working with um, data sets and industrial robot arms for many, many, many years now. Um, what she does is she trains robots based on her gestures uh, when she's drawing or painting, and then they draw and paint along with her and they make collaborative artworks together. Um, or there's another piece that I love so much that's a, a game artwork called How to Not Get Hit by a Self-Driving Car, in which the AI itself is the mechanic and you win the game by tricking the human detection in an AI into thinking that you are not a person. And of course, what's funny in that situation is if you were to effectively trick the AI, you would get hit by a car. Um, but, and it's also really interesting because in the process of playing, you're training the AI in order to work better. Um, so yeah, I, I think there are, there are loads of, of artists and, and creative people who have been using uh, AI in really, really interesting ways. But for me, I think the most interesting projects come with like a back and forth between the player. It's not just, okay, press a button on the AI and it's done. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me when it's a conversation, when it's a back and forth. I mean, I think that, you know, if you think about AI and artworks, there is a lot of people think about art as an end product, as a visual object. And I think that what I'd like to see when we talk about the evolution of different art processes is under evolving our understanding of what art can be mm -hmm. uh, if you're a person like me and you've gone to art school for a million years like you understand that performance can be an art form you can understand that like you know reading some instructions like draw a straight line and follow it that's also an artwork um but that is like a i would say like a fringe weirdo opinion <laughs> Yeah. But, um, what's interesting to me about when you have creatives and artists working with AI, we have a discussion about a technology that isn't led by industry and it's not led by military. Mm -hmm. And those are tend to be the biggest factors about how products take shape and manifest in our world. So I do hope that artists continue to experiment with AI and have more opportunities to do it. So we can continue to invite broader audiences to consider different perspectives of this technology that is going to affect the ways we live, whether we like it or not. Hopefully a lot of those ways will be positive, mm -hmm. but we need everyone on board. So it's not just like the Jeff Bezos is of the world who are deciding what this technology is. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think part of what an artist does, I guess, is reflect what's going on in the real world in a way that is um, saying something, right? You know, sometimes it might be, um, you know, check this bad thing out or check this beautiful thing out or I have this feeling and I'm going to express it in these different ways. And art generally and, and visual arts especially have this dialogue that they they can use with um you know showing something ab about our current situation you know and i guess from the ai and ethics point of view it'd be really nice um to get more of that you know 
the example you gave earlier of that game and and the automated car kind of detection game that's almost that's that's there right that's like you know these things are coming in let's like you say like teach you about it and also try and train it in this fun participatory way like that's really uh, exciting and cool um so it'd be nice to see more things which were enabling people to kind of understand what's going on almost in in a in a new way it sounds very that that's one of the things that sounds exciting for, from what you uh, mentioned earlier already yeah. and when you have artists you know pushing the boundaries of newer technologies that also serves an r&d function for the company itself so you can in the process of doing that you can find new use cases that can potentially be monetized so it's not just like this you know this this thing for the good of the world to have artists making art but artists are going to bring new approaches to tech that um, the limited amount of people that people are considered as users for a particular product aren't going to bring to the table. Mm -mm. And it kind of reminds me of speculative design as well, just having these art, artworks or these um, these items or real world objects tell a story about, you know, in a way that Black Mirror does, like what, where are we going? This could be an artifact from that place and isn't it interesting or terrifying or uh, amazing and we can have good dreams of ai it doesn't have to all be black mirror <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an easy easy touch point right but you're yeah. you're right you're totally right yeah um and and you know it's 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 much easier even for me to to go down that road but like what if what if we could imagine what if we could imagine the the world we want that'd be awesome we should try <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm just hoping that the world that I want is also the world that other people want. You know uh, what I mean? Yeah. yeah. We'll have a dialogue about it, and we'll see how we get to. You know. Uh, awesome. So before we ask the last question that we normally ask on the podcast, um, did you want to briefly talk about how the the AI, um, some of these AI techniques, but also maybe AI historically have worked in the games industry as that's where you're you're currently spending a lot of your time and and have um curatorial a practice there as well absolutely so in video games we have something called npcs which are non-playable characters and actually if you've been on tiktok lately you you might see people pretending to be npcs and repeating like weird phrases like ice cream so good um <laughs> over and over um but i you know if you've played a video game before chances are you've encountered an npc um, those are the characters that you often give you a task and say, or they set context, be like, oh, last cowboys across that ridge we haven't seen again, or um, I've heard there's gold in them, their hills. And um, I'm so good at writing uh. videos. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and we also have enemy NPCs, right? So those those are those are the bad guys that are going to try to to catch you or capture you or shoot you in a video game. So that's actually AI. That's not that's not generative AI. That's that's kind of more like machine learning. Um, but um, yeah, that's that's what the company that uh, I work for does. Um, things which helps developers with things like marking up digital terrain to see where is navigable and where is not navigable. Um, doing that for 2D and 3D dimensions. Also designing the behavior for different types of NPCs. So is this NPC going to remember that he's passed you before or is its 
approach to you going to change based on the fact that you threw something at him? So yeah, so so NPCs have been around in video games for almost as long as as video games themselves. So when people get really excited about AI, but it's this particular technology has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. Um, but it's 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 not the same as ChatGPT. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of like a we talk about all these things in the same umbrella, but they, we've got all these different techniques and almost the different industries talk about it in different ways. Like um, ah. games have been talking about AI as a term for kind of um, automated behavior for since the beginning of of games, really, computer games. Um, but that's definitely not like machine learning or or something. But machine learning has all these other techniques in it as well. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's like it's very muddy, this area. Um, if you... Uh, I'm going to come back to some of the episodes that I recommend on some of these subjects at the end. So, so Sarah, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Um, the last question we always ask is what excites you and what scares you about our AI mediated future? I am I'm sure everyone says this. I'm excited for AI to possibly help us solve the climate emergency. Um, you know, I saw a tweet about this not too long ago and it was like, why <laughs> does all AI want to be a screenwriter or can some of it help us pick garbage out of the ocean? And so I would love some of that good AI that can pick garbage out of the ocean. Um, and yeah, the, the stuff that scares me is, um, you know, we've seen a lot of tech companies that prioritize economic growth above everything else. And so why would the approach to AI be different, which is why I've been outspoken about labor rights and protections for individuals whose work might be um, impacted by AI itself. Um, thank you very much for your time. How do people find you, follow you, um, all that sort of thing? Oh, this is so uncool, but I have LinkedIn. <laughs> my, my name is Sarah Brin, S-A-R-A-H-B-R-I-N. You can find me there. I also have a website that's pretty good, I think. It's yeah, www.sarahbrin.com. Cool. Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I please please give me a shout. I um, love to, to meet interesting people who um, care about anything really (laughs) what an invitation Um, (laughs) (laughs) cool Um, well thank you very much and we'll see you next time thanks Ben hi and welcome to the end of the podcast thanks very much for bearing with me I had extremely creaky chair in this episode so I'm really sorry about that that came through a few times so I'll try and get on top of that for the next one We also mentioned in the episode there are other episodes you should check out. So if you're interested in more AI and art, you can check out episode 41. We talk a lot about speculative design in episode 55 and lots of game stuff in episode 65 and a few after that as well. Thanks again for listening. If you can support the podcast, uh, please go to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. You can sign up there for some extra bits and bobs and you can support the podcast continuing into the future on AI and ethics, tech ethics, all that sort of great stuff. And also, if you'd like to get hold of me for talks, workshops or anything like that, you can go to hello at machine-ethics.net or just say hello and that'd be great too. Thanks and I'll see you next time.